Welcome to Humane Voices, the official podcast of the Humane Society of the United States. Summer vacations are getting the best of us here at HSUS. So this week, we are going to repost a previous yet popular episode that we think you will enjoy. We're going to talk about the various ways that we are battling farm animal confinement around the world, much like we are doing right here in the U.S. of A., We're working globally with big corporations in various cities and countries. And on this episode, you will learn more about some interesting farm animals that we don't hear about as much in the United States. So thanks for being with us and enjoy the episode. So to all of our animal advocates interested in the global scale of our animal efforts, we are joined today by a very special guest, Julie Janowski, uh, Vice President of Farm Animal Welfare for Humane Society International. Thanks so much for sitting down to chat with us today, Julie. We are so glad that you're here. Hello, and thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you about the wild, wild world of farm animals. The wild, wild world the of farm wild, animals. Wild, yes. world. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking speaking of that wild world, uh, for some of the listeners, Julie, who may not be familiar with our international work, the work that you do, can you talk a bit about the responsibilities of your team and the issues that you focus on? Yeah, absolutely. So we work around the world, but we're in about just over a dozen countries. We have people on the ground, and those are campaigners, they are chefs, they are nutritionists. Uh, They are scientists. They are people who know the technical aspects of farming. So what we work on are two main things, and that the team is focused on the areas of reducing the number of animals that have to go into factory farming, so that big industrial farming, and then also making life better and having better welfare and higher welfare for the animals that are currently on factory farms. Mm. And that's around the world. It's a definite concern. Julie, just out of curiosity, like when we're, I mean, we had, we had Josh Balk who, who handles farmer animals for HSUS on a while ago. And I think one of the things that I'd be curious about is when we're talking about factory farms globally, as opposed to domestically, are there differences in the kinds of animals that you see, you know, impacted by factory farming overseas versus in the U.S.? You know, it's around the world. We still have chickens as the greatest number Mm -hmm. of animals that are raised and slaughtered every year. It's over 66 billion, billion with a B around the world. Um, And then followed by that are laying hens, different than your quote unquote meat chickens. Mm. Um, The one that may surprise people, a couple that may surprise people, um, the third most commonly slaughtered animal are ducks. Hmm. And that's coming in at over 3 billion ducks per year. So that's a little bit different. You don't hear about that in as high numbers in the U.S. um, than you have typical Pigs, of course, rabbits are on that high top five list as to how many rabbits are raised and slaughtered, as well as geese. Um, The one that might stick out, and this is not a campaign that we are beginning or starting or even that I was terribly aware of until recently, are the number of dairy camels that are slaughtered per year around the world. It's kind of an interesting one. It's more than 8 million Whoa. Um, Did you say, wait, so you said dairy camels that are slaughtered per year? Yes. That's really interesting. I I, I still remember, I have a, a, a bizarre little camel thing where, um, you know, when we moved to Australia, we, we lived there for three years and I had, I had no idea, but camels are really like, they're, they're sort of like deer are here. You can go to parts of central Australia where you have sort of feral camels all throughout. And they're, they're so common that Australia was actually exporting cam- camels to Saudi Arabia, which is like, 
this is not what I expected. And so, uh, yeah, that's really interesting. I had real, I had no idea that, that camels were really even impacted by factory farming. Oh, you learn something new and horrible every day. (laughs) Yeah, really. Here's your depressing news for your midday. No, don't uh, worry, Austin. We'll get to more. (laughs) We'll back it on later. Um, Well, since we're talking about this theme of U.S. and global, I just feel like there's another angle that we throw into the mix when we talk about this global factory farming issue. Are there, you know, we only focus on one country in the U.S. Are there... I'm sure progressive countries, regressive countries that throughout time you're keeping tabs on. Um, yeah, it, I mean it differs around the world, and some countries can be good on one particular mm. type of animal and not so good on another one, um, and all of them are at different stages, really. Um, you know, you had more of the industrialized factory farming, which means those the confinement systems, the cage and crate confinement that we put so many animals in every year. Um, we kind of, they developed almost simultaneously, but the U.S. was on the, on the head of that sphere of development of gestation crates for mother sows, where they're kept for almost four months at a time of their life, um, battery cages and just cages in general for hens that in the U.S., prominently around the world. And really, this is this great emergence in this new factory farming, industrialized farming. Um, it took off around the world. And you still see now that the companies that are in U.S., EU, um, in several of the developed countries are still pushing a lot of those systems to take hold in more developing countries. Uh. So really, that's one of our big goals is to uh, make sure they don't take root in countries that aren't already using these awful systems. This sounds like a lot like the, some of the dynamic you see around um, environmental regulation where, you know, a lot of the, the you know, the, the so-called first world has driven us to the sort of brink of environmental disaster. And now it's, it's hard to develop policies and negotiate with countries that see sort of the sort of affluence and the lifestyle, the lifestyle that the West has achieved and, mm-hmm. you know, like try to, ne- try to sort of say, hey, we messed up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I never really thought of it that way. But the, now that you explain kind of the economy of it, as citizens earn more money, as countries get more developed, where they typically saw buying meat as a as a luxury now becomes more standardized practice. And you're trying to, you know, stop that mentality. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, okay. and the the opposition, the industry, the, you know, there's corporations, what their goal is, is to beat us to those developing countries and get fast food set up, get production set up, start to develop. I mean, they want to, it's almost like um, you might see smoking. They want to develop a base. Um, So getting into countries where chicken fingers weren't normally the (laughs) go-to in parts of Africa. Now we're seeing um, Chinese owned companies going into places in Africa, going into Argentina, going into Vietnam, and setting up huge factory farming operations. Um, wow. And it's also you know, driven, it's not just the Chinese, it for sure is all of the developing countries who have these systems because it is corporate, a corporate push. That's very depressing. It's the global march of the chicken finger. I don't <laughs> like it. Oh, man. Um, yeah. Well, you you were talking about, um, you know, this, this economic battle. So, I'm, you know, curious, Carrie and I have been talking about it pretty much for every episode for the past few months, but how have factory farms been affected, you know, for COVID? How has the issue been, you know, is this 
was this a, another potential ground zero for another future pandemic waiting to happen? Is this, you know, another fight that you're trying to work on with your team now that COVID has, you know, become very prevalent? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The pandemic has put a lot of different organizations and NGOs together and scientists together and academics who all can now see the real relevance of where the next pandemic is going to come from. Um, it is having factory farming and almost any kind of major animal agriculture going into more wild areas is just inviting the problems. And when you pack together thousands of animals in one confined area, it's, it's a breeding ground. They're stressed. They are just jammed together. It's a breeding ground for more disease, more virus. Right. And for that for those diseases and viruses to cross over into human populations, I would imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is, you know, both a, a <laughs> it definitely highlights the need that these factory farms and the industry has for biosecurity, but that doesn't necessarily, of course, mean good things for animal welfare. So Julie, well, just out of curiosity, like when you're, when you're getting into like, as, as kind of an activist organization, like when you're trying to sort of motivate people, people and kind of get them to sort of understand like, what is like, I mean, I think one of the things that's always a challenge about this issue is, is just the pure scale of it. Um, Cause I think people tend to hear, you know, billions and you, the mind kind of reels, right? You're just kind of like, how do you even start to approach making change on that scale? How do you sort of convey to people the sort of emotional side of that kind of volume of lives who were impacted by, by this industry? And so I was really just kind of curious, like when you guys approach this, like what tends to be the best motivator? Is it, you know, like, is it, is it working? You know, do you, do you find it it's most effective to kind of work with corporations, try to bring them along, to get laws passed, to talk to the public directly, or, or what's, what works best? Or is it a combination of all those? It's a combination of all those, absolutely. But as we were talking about how, you know, some of the developed countries have really been the head of the spear for some of the worst practices and distributing those around the world. Mm -hmm. We also have the ability to use those big corporate giants who are multinational, who might be headquartered in the U.S., headquartered in the EU and have branches or have outlets around the world. If those big companies take a pledge to say, we're not going to support any kind of mm. cage confinement of any of the products we're going to sell, no eggs that come from chickens who are housed in tiny little cages are going to be a part of our, what we offer. Mm. Um, if they can export those policies around the world, so all their branches also, you know, are refined and don't do this. It sends a good message because we're changing the very base of demand. Mm, right. Like they, they, they have the capacity to impact the economy on such a huge scale that that kind of policy I would imagine can trickle out and trickle down. Yeah, absolutely. And they create the demand and that's when we can go in and work with the farmers. Mm, so we work with farmers around the world to help them transition because a lot of them, you know, they're just using these systems because they were told this is how it's done. And a lot of these systems, the worst didn't even show up until the 60s or 70s. Mm. So it's, um, they're starting to be embedded, but we stop it and then bring those farmers back to actually higher welfare. Are you, are you able, when you're talking about the sort of systems that we've used in the past, are you guys able to propose better alternatives? Is that one of the things you can go in and, and sort of um, get action on and sort of say, hey, you've been doing this, this sort of confinement farming in this style, like here is a practice we have seen work and that other companies have made work? Yes, absolutely. It's, and it's 
it's, it's a combination of not just, we have to talk to the corporations to tell them why this should be done. It is good for business mm. to have higher animal welfare. People in the, around the world want animals to live a life free of suffering. Mm-hmm. And so the corporations understand that and they know that this is a niche. Um, and so that drives the producers to bring forward those better welfare systems. And so we teach, we then go in and work with the best experts around the world on how to really make the the best change for those animals. Yeah. And what I really love about that is that you don't just go to the corporations and say, this needs to change, but then you follow up with actionable results and positive change to do that. I know that you mentioned chefs a little bit in your work. Can you talk a little bit about how you implement that work in, in, uh, this, this global issue? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, that's on our plant-based side of our work, our plant-based solutions. And so that is, we reach out to the biggest institutions and that might be, um, food service providers, uh, like Sodexo, they're global. And if they decide to say, you know what, we are going to increase the offering that we have and we're going to have more delicious plant-based foods available. And we're going to reduce how much um, meat, eggs, dairy that we're, we're making available. That just goes around the world. And it also drives demand for plant-based mm. products. Mm. And so we work with food service companies like that. We work with municipalities. We work with some of the biggest cities and school districts in Brazil, for instance. We work with factories in Vietnam, where you're seeing universities in the UK where thousands of people are being served. There are millions of meals. And so we're actively, we have chefs who go out and teach the absolute best recipes that are appropriate for that local area, for what they normally eat that are Mm. affordable, um, that are tasty, and that the cooks and chefs can take real pride in making and serving. And, you know, we hope that that's also going to help production methods in those areas. So the thinking behind that, Julie, I guess is, is, I mean, one of the things that strikes me about like working with corporations is I imagine that part of the thing that kind of leads corporations down this path is knowing that consumers want it, right? And and so it seems like you're kind of coming, like it's sort of like a pincher movement where you're creating like the, the consumer capacity to cook and think about food in new ways and ask for it in new ways. And then the, the corporation's response over here. And we come at it by driving that demand, but also just the availability. A lot of people mm. don't even know if you walk into a university campus and you're going to have lunch, if they don't offer anything that is plant-based, then you have no way, there's no option for you. Mm. And we find just by having that offering, you see an uptick in people that want to do a little bit more on the plant-based side, especially given human health and given the environment. And yeah. also the animal welfare. I mean, it's such a multi-pronged issue and it reducing the amount of animals we consume is better on all three of those fronts. That's a, it's a really good point. I remember going to college and going to the cafeteria and I'm like, all right, hot dogs, hamburgers, mm-hmm. veggies. Okay. Mm-hmm. What are uh, those again? Not going to want yeah. that. All right. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Give me the hot dogs. So yeah, that's that's great. I mean, I didn't even think about it, but but just just like you're saying, giving the option and and the tasty and visibly aesthetic option, um, it could create a cultural change for sure. So Julie, when you're de- when you guys are dealing with something uh, like an issue of this scale, like how does it how is it going? Like, do you guys feel like there's progress? I mean, is there is there good movement? I mean, I, you know, every time I start thinking in terms of the numbers you're talking about with global factory farming, 
I have to admit that I kind of get to a point where I, I kind of find myself staring into space and kind of like, oh my God, it's so big. It's, it's like, how do you even start? And so I'm curious, like, you know, we see sort of pieces of change, but how do you think it's going overall? Like, where are the places you're seeing progress? You know, are there places that you see setbacks that you're working on specifically? Um, it's one of those things, I feel like it's uh, kind of like learning another language mm. where when you start off and you get the alphabet, it's like, oh, all right, I got this. This is easy. And then the more you learn, the more you realize how challenging it mm. is and all of the the smaller issues. And I, I feel like that's very true about farm animal issues around the world. Um, we are making progress. And that is the really good news. As, as depressing as so much of it can be and the atrocities that you see that are commonplace around the world, it's, we're making definitive progress. You see um, the EU, uh, they have a ban on battery cages. So they're trying to improve the welfare. Uh, you see the US, and you mentioned having Josh on. In the US, there are states that are changing just every year. We see more states where people want to eliminate those worst abuses. Um, and then you see other things like in Germany, where they just recently banned the practice of eviscerating chicks. Uh, and I know that sends us back into depressing zone. Right. It's, it's just huge. like, first of all, by the way, people eviscerate chicks. But there's definite progress. Um, we talk to, we get more and more corporations every month. We see more corporations that are saying, oh, wait, we know you've been bugging us for two or three years to pay attention to animal welfare. And all right, we, we finally have time to focus on it. And oh, look, more countries are actually taking action on this. Maybe we need, as a corporation, need to get ahead of that curve before regulations or laws come. Mm -hmm. uh, so we see, you know, I think last year we had about more than 20 major multinational corporations who said, get the worst welfare products out of our supply chain. That's great. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. Vietnam recently passed their first farm animal welfare housing law. Mm. Um, and then uh, Singapore, I don't know if you had a chance to talk about this, but in Singapore, they've been the first country to actively allow for sale cellular or clean or cultured meat. Mm, that's fascinating. So what are, do you have a sense of like, what is it about Singapore that kind of led them to lead the charge on this? Um, you know, I wish I knew the inner workings behind the scenes, but I mm -hmm. think it once again is a matter of opportunity, initiative, you know, a company that came in and said, wait, we have something we can offer you as a country. You can be the first in doing this. Mm -hmm. This is something that's good, has the potential to alleviate hunger. This is yeah. something that will eventually scale up enough where we won't have to have all of the devastating effects of factory farming if yeah. we're able to do this in a confined environment. So I, I think it's, you know, Singapore being willing to talk to companies about this idea and invest in it. Yeah, and be innovative. That's really interesting. Exactly. Well, we spoke a lot about what your team is doing, what uh, corporations and organizations are doing around the world. Really, the one of the last questions that I have is what can we, either as the listeners or the consumers, do to help in this fight? Um, I think the number one thing you can do, no matter what country you live in, is you know add a few plant-based days to your week. You know, have a couple meals, have a couple days if you can, um, where you're choosing some of the awesome plant-based options that are out there now. 
Eat the veggies, um, Austin. Eat the veggies. <laughs> but remember, French fries. French fries are plant based. So there is hope, right? I can this live on French fries. Yes. I can do that. <laughs> okay. All right. Sorry. There's so many foods that you don't traditionally think of because you think if it's plant based, it sounds too healthy. I, I'm with you guys. I have a hard time with the healthy side. Is a croissant a vegetable? Is a croissant a vegetable? Just I think checking. ketchup is now a vegetable too. So. That was in a previous administration, Austin. Oh, shoot. Okay. Um, so I'd say that that's the number one thing you can do when making purchases as a consumer. Look for those higher welfare. Look for cage-free. Mm-hmm. Look for crate-free. Um, and when you're in grocery stores, when you're in restaurants, ask for more plant-based options. Ask, for, ask where these animals, where this product came from. Um, and then, you know, something really simple everybody can do is take a look at hsi.org. And we have an action up there right now that is a global call to action um, for around the world, where the World Organization for Animal Health is currently looking at trying to make recommendations for better welfare for egg-laying hens. Mm -hmm. So that's something everybody can just go on the website, hit that action, and then uh, sign up for HSI, um, at HSI Farm Animals on Instagram. And you can also see all the different stuff we're doing around the world. Plus, if you want to try some unique recipes that might be popular in Brazil, South Africa, Vietnam, uh, they'll be on there. Oh, that's awesome. I love that, especially since we're all trapped at home and have nothing to do but cook anyway, right? We can make some, I'll see Carrie making fun TikToks or something now. She'll be, she'll be. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to happen. Hey, the week. <laughs> do I all have right. to do the shoulder movement? Is I don't know. No, no, you Austin? do. You, no, uh, I, artistic mm. liberties. You can yeah. do what you want. Mm. Um, <laughs> oh, I can't believe I almost forgot this. Uh, happy International Year of the Fruit and Vegetables. This Yay. is a UN declared the international year for fruits and vegetables. So what better year to try to make do some do some planning to help out some farm animals? Clearly, Big Cantaloupe Lobby has been out there. <laughs> very active, very active. I always wonder, like, you know, look, who's like, I'm, I like picturing the actual fruits and vegetables lo- lobbying for their position in the food chain. You know, it's like the bill on Capitol Hill, except it's a broccoli out there saying, eat me, eat me for God's sakes. Oh my gosh, Carrie's going to be here all week, folks. <laughs> Um, no, that is my broccoli. Um, Julie, thank you so much. This, yeah, really, really great actionable ways to get involved. Um, really, really productive conversation. Thank you so much for, for helping us with, with all the ways that we can help, uh, all of these animals and improve their lives all over the world. Julie Janowski, vice president of farm animal welfare for humane society international. That's all we have for today's show. To find out more how we are working to improve the lives of farm animals around the world, you heard it here. Head to hsi.org and follow all the actions and also at HSI Farm Animals uh, so that you can follow along in social media. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you again, Julie, and see you next time on Humane Voices. Eat your broccoli! <laughs> <laughs>